Hi, you're listening to Hoopleheads, a Deadwood podcast at MovieFail. My name is Soren Howe, and I'm here with Esther Rosenfield. And today we are going to be discussing True Colors, which is the, what are we on, fourth episode? Third. Third episode? Third episode of season three. Um, and it is directed by Greg Feinberg and uh, written by Regina Carrado and Ted Mann. Um, these are two writers who have written previous episodes, and this season, it seems like it they are coming in pairs for writers. So um, it, the first two were David Milch and Regina Carrado, or David Milch and I think Ted Mann, and now Ted Mann and Regina Carrado writing together. So it seems very collaborative um, in how they're approaching these episodes. And also, perhaps, I don't know, but I suspect that behind the scenes, maybe they decided these episodes were too collaborative to just give credit to one person versus another, and they decided to just mix it up a bit so um yeah previous seasons there haven't been any episodes that have paired off that have been credited with being written by two writers so to have the first three all be that way is interesting yeah exactly exactly and i think that it um it makes it a bit harder for me because i like to notice patterns with who's writing and who's directing and all that but um because you know it, sometimes you're like oh maybe it's because of this the way this person writes or whatever you know that that sort of influences how certain characters are portrayed um but they've made it quite difficult now because <laughs> they keep mixing and matching these writers well i wonder i have to wonder just based on the pairs we're looking at if like milch and Corrado and man the three of them kind of broke these first three episodes together yeah and so when they went to split it up they just it's it's all it's all the possible pairs of the three of them, right? Right, so exactly. They just were like, all right, so you know, the three of us basically did these three episodes, but we'll pair off each one, uh, so that we're kind of equally credited for all three of them. Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, uh, this was a hell of an episode. I really, really <laughs> enjoyed it. Uh, it's kind of a like so many things. It's funny. It's like really sad. You see so many aspects of so many characters, including new characters who we'd never met previously. Uh, and we learn yet new things about characters that we've been watching for three seasons. Um, and there's a lot of like stating things outright about characters, which I don't know how, what, what your, what your feeling was about it. I thought it was appropriate in an episode called true colors. Um, hmm. But uh, I, I just, I, yeah, I really liked it. And Greg Feinberg's a, a cool director and, yeah, just, I dug it. Greg Feinberg is a weird director. Um, I don't... Here's the thing. Last season, I think we can... I think we agree, like, pretty much all the directors last season were really strong. I think maybe, like, Steve Schill is the one who I would single out as being, like, not super interesting, but, like, Ed Bianchi and Dan Minahan and, and Michael Amoreda and, like, Tim Van Patten. I remember specifically who, like, what those guys brought to the table. I don't remember as much for Greg Feinberg, but I don't remember like finding him middling in the way that maybe Steve Schill was not a bad director, but was just kind of like more typical TV. Right. This is a very strangely directed episode. And I really <laughs> dug and not in a way that like, um, you've liked Greg Feinberg in the past that I do remember. I couldn't remember I, I'm sure why I have. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember why either. <laughs> I just can't remember stuff like that. But I, it is there is so many strange little ticks in this episode, and just like little, like I'll give you an example. There's this moment where Sai and um, Hurst are meeting in for in their their first scene together, where the camera does this 
zoom on the Bible under Sai's hand. And it's very like 70s new American cinema, this zoom. Yeah, it's really don't... it's like points directly to it. Yeah, it's like a it's like a um it's like a um Alan J. Pakula movie. It's like <laughs> it, it's crazy. It's like it just to see, I mean, first like of all, like a star, like a Starsky and Hutch. Uh, vibe I mean, yeah, it's like you yeah. never you never <laughs> see zooms anymore ever. Mm. Like people don't do zooms or they'll do like digital zooms, which is not the same thing where they'll like, you know, a digital zoom is basically where you shoot something at a higher resolution so that you can kind of imitate a zoom by going in closer on a portion of the frame but it you, you can very you can tell when you look at it if you see it side by side with an actual like camera zoom that it's a very different visual uh quality this is a zoom <laughs> and it's just kind of crazy to see that in an episode of television in 2006 um and, but really cool like it's it is it is cool that greg feinberg is the director who will go there and it's not necessarily like the most, I think, aesthetically consistent episode in the way that like an Ed Bianchi or a Dan Minahan are like, they have very clear, succinct visions. And you can see that throughout. There's just a lot of kind of strange, like, but noticeable, like I said, ticks in the way he'll move the camera, in the way he'll position the camera and, and not specifically not move the camera. Um, I, yeah, I, I dug it. I, I think it's 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 cool. Yeah, it's funny that you um that you picked up on uh uh the directing in the episode because I was actually it wasn't like last episode where I felt like where we both said that we felt like it was sort of just TV direction. I think it was last episode, right? Yeah, yeah. Um and and it wasn't it was a good episode like narratively we had a lot to talk about but in terms of the direction. Here there are like some you know, there's the the scene the very few things stuck out to me. Uh, I did notice that. What's funny is I noticed that Bible shot, but I was so focused on size Bible thing, his theme, his whatever his motif that he keeps coming back to, um, his fake motif, <laughs> being like a Bible guy, um, that I wasn't paying t- so much attention to the camera work. But the camera work really does draw your attention to it. It like the camera like moves from his face all the way down his arm. Um, but the other, the, the other, the one, the, the scene that I thought was perhaps more obvious. So what's, I suppose when it becomes clear is when you're shooting the same scene or the same set or location, uh, and it comes across differently because of how the scene has changed. And it's, it has to do with camera work, uh, to some degree, as well as obviously what's happening in the narrative. But for example, when Ellsworth and um, Alma are sitting yes. down with Hearst versus when Alma is sitting down with Hearst later. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the first instance, it doesn't feel nearly, it feels actually quite open. In fact, they talk about how open it is um, for other reasons, but it does feel a lot more open. There's a lot more distance between them. Um, but when it's Hearst and Alma, the claustrophobia and her standing way too close. It has to do, I mean, in part, just blocking, right, where they're standing yeah. in the scene. It just feels so much more uncomfortable and, you know, um, uh, stuffy uh, in that scene versus how it does earlier. So I noticed in moments like that, and then in that scene with Hurst and Alma, they're both, there's that shot uh, uh, 
the of the the one shot of Hurst on the right hand uh, in profile and the shot of Alma in profile as well, uh, where she's on the left hand side of the screen and he's on the right hand side of the screen in two different shots. Um, and it's just it's like that, you know, it's like the 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 show the um uh, the showdown in the in the old west like that kind of <laughs> um mm. shot or like a anime or whatever where you you do those profile shots to show these two characters are squaring off yeah um, and I, that's it actually astonishes me it just occurs to me like seeing that that's never happened in deadwood <laughs> i don't think at any point um but it's such a like a common like uh framing technique or device um and they just they've never used it before in the show and they they finally use it in this um in this encounter so yeah so like that's where it popped up but mostly it didn't really um there's some he does a lot of like tracking shots from side to side and things like that it's to so the point because i have so many notes <laughs> well to the point where like i actually got a bit confused because i know that daniel minahan does that thing and it wasn't the same way he does it but because minahan does it to sh- like sort of introduce scenes he sort of swoops in and, be- and and sort of sets the scene that way um and greg feinberg's not doing that he's he's keeping things a bit more kinetic and it's not like an establishing shot um so but i had to i had to go back and check and see like it wasn't greg feinberg who did that wasn't that it was it was daniel minahan so you there are certainly uh, bits and pieces here that are, are are were noticeable to me but it wasn't to the same extent as like minahan or one of the other directors in the past well there, i mean yeah that's it's funny because i have a bunch like there's that um there's the the scene where alma and ellsworth after after uh, Hurst kind of terrorizes Alma. Um, she goes back to Ellsworth and they have a, they have a spat. And first of all, this scene, there's like a, a million different setups of this one image because mm. the two of them are complete are standing and are sitting in the same place. They're not, they don't move, but he keeps like finding new angles on this one kind of image to frame this them. one yeah. moment. Yeah. I did and notice then, that and well. one yeah, of yeah. them is like, one of them is like almost like a split diopter shot. I don't think it literally is. Cause I can't imagine you're getting a split diopter for even for an HBO show in, in 2006. Like there, you just couldn't do that. Uh, but it, it like resembles one where, you know, Ellsworth's very close to the camera and almost very far away and they're both in focus. Um, and then, there's this shot in the sheriff's like station where they have the miners and I don't know something about, I, I it's, it's uh Charlie standing outside the cage and then the miners are inside and it just strikes me as very, it's a very interestingly like flat composition. It's very uh, straight across very There's, you know, every, everyone is on the exact same plane. Um, it reminds me a lot of, a, a, there's some stuff in the third season of Twin Peaks that's very similar to that, where it's, and that's um, interesting because it's very digital and very glossy. So it, it has a very specifically uh, flat look in a lot of places. And this kind of has the same thing of just, I don't know, it, it just kind of struck me, it, it stood out to me. Um, but I mean, I, I again, it's like, this is a weird episode for me because I'm, I don't think Feinberg has that consistency of vision that a Minahan, that a Bianchi do, you know, where I think that they are great directors. I think Greg, Greg Feinberg is an interesting director, and he clearly, and what's and what's most interesting about him is that he doesn't really direct. If you look at his IMDb, he's a producer mostly. He's produced, a, he produced yeah. this show. I was going to say, yeah, that's, that's, I think his first credits on the show were all producer credits, and then he, which is funny because usually it's the other way around, right? Like on Game of Thrones, a lot of the directors ended up becoming producers. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, in this case, it was the reverse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his all his director credits 
are from Deadwood, except for the one episode of John from Cincinnati, which is Milch's follow-up show, right. and one episode of True Blood. Like, he does not direct, but he clearly has a director's sensibility. Can I just ask, uh, where are the John from Cincinnati fans who are demanding uh, we do a podcast follow-up to this? <laughs> you know what's show? funny? I feel like I see, like, people on Twitter, especially after, like, around the time of that the movie aired people were like you know what john from cincinnati was good <laughs> i've actually seen like there okay. um there was some was it variety or somebody did like a, a like a list of the greatest all the best hbo shows of all time deadwood was in the top five i believe um but i think uh they john from cincinnati was really high up they were like it was really weird like the whole concept was strange and also to go from deadwood to that was really weird and like his writing is brilliant but like he it's like in a I think it's in like a California like surfer town. Like the whole thing was just bizarre um, in concept. But they were like, actually, it was kind of interesting and cool. And then, you know, it was canceled. And then David Mills sort of just did other things for a while um, and had personal troubles and whatnot um, yeah. before coming back to Deadwood. So, uh, yeah, I mean, who knows? I was, but I just, I, I figured I'd throw it out there and, and see if anybody bites on <laughs> Hey, John it's one it's one season, right? Yeah, we Honestly, could do that. It. Might be that might be fun. Like just it, just a little podcast miniseries, twelve episodes. Because we wouldn't know. I mean, we know nothing about that show. I don't know anything about John. It, I may I have I may it, have even mischaracterized what the show's about. I may have. All I know is that it was ranked quite highly on that on that list, which means nothing. But just that it's not seen as like a like some miserable failure. I think it was just. The, the timing was bad for it seems to be the main mission which is true of his, a lot of his uh, a lot of his work john from cincinnati is an american television drama set against the surfing community of imperial beach california yeah exactly yeah what yeah that's what he went from this to it that stars bruce greenwood yep we have to watch this okay all right <laughs> i have to i have to watch john from cincinnati because oh and paula malcolmson's in it all right Oh, actually, if she's in it, then I'm actually really convinced because, you know, just seeing them together again would be awesome. Um, and I'm looking whatever. at the episode credits. It's all Deadwood alums. Oh, okay, let's definitely do it then. Yeah, it's only 10 episodes. Okay, Decisions, decision made. We have to do a John from Cincinnati podcast. <laughs> oh, that's going to be amazing. That's our no next one's going to listen to it. I, ha- I have to warn you. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, Somehow, our Cincinnati audience will get there. even smaller to the point where there's like... That one guy who's like, oh man, thank God someone's doing John from Cincinnati, my favorite show. Maybe there's a dormant, a dormant John from Cincinnati fandom that we have to tap into. Well, it'd actually be incredible if it turns out. Is there like a subreddit? I mean, we gotta look at this. <laughs> Hang on, let me go to reddit.com <laughs> slash r slash John from Cincinnati. They're called Borders? <laughs> of course they are. It's A page is loading. Okay, there are... <laughs> There are two posts on the subreddit. Amazing. From three years ago. One of them is from a user named A Lie Agreed Upon. So. Well, there you go. You can see the Milch connection. Um, So this, (laughs) the first post is called Some Things I Know and Some Things I Don't. With HBO Now, JFC is available to anyone with an account. I've been able to persuade one good friend to start watching this gem and he loves it. I'd like to see more people experience this beautiful little show. That's the whole post. Awesome. I mean, that, look, that post exists to get us to do a podcast about it. And then we'll we be have the to only take other over post. the subreddit. Yeah. <laughs> this, this subreddit becomes a subreddit just for our show about that show. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. I've Plan completely made. diverted the conversation. 
if you're listening to this and you would like to hear a John from Cincinnati podcast, let us know. In the yeah, comments. for sure. I mean, genuinely, it's only ten episodes. But yes, yeah, so Greg Feinberg directed an episode of of that show, so you know we could we can look for some of these little these weird little um, quirks uh, in the sunny town of Imperial Beach, California, or something, whatever that is. Don't even know. I think Imperial Beach, California. Yeah, the surfing uh, community. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we can talk about, if there are other technical things, we can certainly talk about them maybe as the, as we go through the many, many events of this episode. Yeah. This episode was just huge. It at is. Some, at some point, I looked at the time. Not because I was bored. I was like, this is really cool, but like, it must be almost done. And it was like halfway through the episode. And I was like, how is that possible? How yeah. is that possible? Um, so we have two carriages arrive in the town. I'm going to just frame it this way. Two carriages arrive in the town. We have on one of them, uh, Wu arriving uh, back in the town. And he is now um, dressed in sort of western clothes with his hair still cut and down and a hat and um we find out in a little bit that he's and i guess we should have put two and two together he was sent off to to quote unquote work for hearst even though he's really working for al or working with al um and he was supposed to go collect uh, workers for hearst that was his his mission that's when he why he was in san francisco also on this carriage is aunt lou who is um a i believe a slave i think seems to be the yeah, I think she's a slave. <laughs> uh, working for yeah. um, for Hearst, and uh, also Blazanov comes back to the town. Great return of uh, Blazanov. Great character, super mm-hmm. earnest, and um, really quite like a bizarre character, but kind of sweet. And we get even more of Blazanov than we ever could have hoped in this episode. Getting a little bit of insight into actually how he actually feels about things, as opposed to um, just being like the telegraph operator. Um, and then in the other. Uh, carriage we get uh john langrish who is uh brian cox amazing incredible actor so excited to see him in the show i had actually forgotten entirely about this whole subplot but it is fascinating incredibly fascinating i was i was sadly spoiled that brian cox does appear on this show but i i I wish i could have had the moment of seeing brian cox step out of that carriage (laughs) and realizing he was on deadwood which is crazy, right? Like, it's what a get. It's insane. <laughs> um, Brian Cox, who's been in a thousand things, um, I will just bring it up again because I, I don't know why, for some reason. I, I feel like people who listen to our podcasts, like the Game of Thrones podcast and this podcast and other ones, think I've watched, like, three movies and that's, like, the only <laughs> thing. I just reference them. But, you know, famously, the Bourne franchise. Um, Brian Cox, big character there as well. Um, but just a very famous uh, and... and storied actor so cool to see the him second here. the second best hannibal lecter actor <laughs> except for uh what's uh what's his face um on uh on hannibal. See who you're... yes mads mickelson yes. mads mickelson yeah um, in, in a, who in is a also great a great actor movie. who is not yeah. in deadwood unfortunately but, uh, tragically he, he hadn't had his moment yet so like he if wasn't... deadwood was made today he would have absolutely he would have <laughs> played blazanov probably <laughs> What a fascinating addition to the uh he could have played Blasma. Um what a fascinating addition to the to the show. Um so yes, but no, we have this other fascinating addition to the show, which is uh uh Jack uh Langrish, uh also known as John. Um and uh 
worth noting about him. So he, he runs, it seems like a theater company here. Um, mm-hmm. So he was a real person. Naturally. And he was an Irish American, an Irish American actor uh, and uh, was known as a comedian of the frontier um, and really did go um, to Deadwood, uh, set up a theater there and that theater. So he was actually one of the founders uh, important in the founding or like the very early days of Deadwood. And um, his theater was where they held the trial of Jack McCall. I saw that. Yeah. It's so, so they've rearranging. Uh, yeah, they've rearranged timelines a bit, but he was a significant person in Deadwood. Um, whether or not he had any connection to Al Swearingen, I think is fictional, but um, I don't think there's any evidence of that. Although again, I'm sure someone can correct me if that's not the case. Um, so that's quite cool. of the comedian of the frontier is really funny. Cause it just like, it makes you think about like back in those days, it was just like one guy. Yeah. Like, oh, he's, he's the comedian of the frontier. The, the single he's, comedian. He's, yeah. He's the one. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and uh, he, uh, his, uh, his theater also feet. So calamity Jane was um, one of the people who performed there. It was like sort of just one of the attractions there because, you know, sort of famous people from the area would be, you know, presented at the theater i don't know if what they exactly would do um but it would be to sort of um as a as a as some form of entertainment um and in addition to that an, a fun little fact is that he used to work um uh, as a reporter in i think new york working for a major newspaper i don't remember if new york tribune or something like that um and uh, so it actually sort of hints at his connection to merrick in this episode although his connection to merrick is questionable it may be that he is simply looking to drum up interest in himself um because he is in fact a promoter and is really just interested in getting people to come to his shows so um whether or not he's actually interested in merrick's uh you know uh, press and all that is um perhaps uh, uh, dubious but the actual real person really was a reporter at one point so um, perhaps he does have some uh, affinity for that at least uh, in the historical um historical version of this character so um so yeah so these are the uh, the new arrivals at the camp some of them are returns and uh yeah where do you want to start there's so um, much to do i guess hearst is like the centerpiece so we could sort of trickle yeah around. you know this episode is it got me thinking actually like this season kind of revolves around hearst in a way that the previous seasons like never had like a kind of central engine mm. um you know, they kind of did in terms of like, you know, so-and-so and, and the politics and Yankton and all. But there's never been like a central figure around whom the entire everything, like in this episode, every single character, everything they want, everything they're doing is related to Hearst. It's all related to Hearst. And that is coming off, especially season two where everything like Walcott was was a central figure of season two, but he wasn't the central figure. Mm. You know, there are things to there are things that happen in season two that have nothing to do with Walcott, and there are what the things that happen in season two are not related to each other. A lot of them, they can just kind of be individual character storylines. So it's it's a it's a change of pace to have a kind of to have someone like Hurst who literally everything that's going on revolves around him. I think I I agree with you. I think what's cool about that because it, in one way, you can see it as sort of a, a shift and maybe a good maybe maybe even a bad way depending on how you you know whether or not you like that as a vibe. Um, 
you know, sort of an ensemble cast versus like something that revolves around. Not that I think the other actors aren't. I think actually all the other actors are doing a lot. Um, so it's not to say that like it's a showpiece for for Hearst or, or Gerald McRaney, but I think um, what it's nice narratively is it shows like this person coming in who like draws everyone else is everyone else into his orbit. It sort of emphasizes his power and his uh, influence and significance in the town that everything else sort of stops the moment he shows up to focus on what he's doing. Uh, and I think that's, that's cool because it's what they've talked about, but you know, sometimes the, you know, when they finally reveal the big bad or the whatever, the, the reveal isn't nearly as exciting as the way they talked about the, the, the person or the, the entity or the company or whatever. And so when he shows up, everything really does end up revolving around him, which is what you would expect from somebody like George Hurst showing up in some frontier town. So I think that's, I think it's cool. Yeah. It's, it's, I wonder, I don't dislike it. I, I, I'm kind of waiting to see how things develop, but I think, I wonder if I would be less attuned to it if Deadwood had run for six seasons. Mm. You know what I mean? If this could be a thing where it's like, all right, this season is the Hurst season. Right. And everything revolves around him for these 12 episodes. But when those 12 episodes are a third of the entire show, it stands out a lot more. Right. And it was supposed to go on as we know. So, yeah. Um, maybe the movie will wrap it all up. Well, who knows? <laughs> and like I, I give us enough don't. of a balance. Yeah, exactly. And don't tell us if it does. <laughs> don't you love that scene when Bullock just kills Al? It's amazing. What a good scene. Um, <laughs> oh my God. Can I just say, I haven't seen, again, I haven't seen the movie, but I would go crazy if it, if it turns into like an inglorious bastards, like rewriting of history and, and Seth just like shoots Hurst in the head. <laughs> That would be like what an incredible turn for this show that has always been so devoted to like depicting things that actually happened. Yeah, that would be uh, a choice, certainly. Um, <laughs> uh, but perhaps we'll have to leave that to Tarantino. I wonder uh, if Tarantino likes this show. Maybe it's probably not not enough violence for him. Yeah, but there's enough swearing. So, but there's enough swearing. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah. So we, I mean, we open with this. Uh, <laughs> it's such a weird opening to this episode. So Al yeah. is scratching his hand and he's been hiding his, so we learn later that he's been hiding his hand from everybody in the camp um, and pretending like it's not an issue. Uh, and also they're really not specific with what exactly happened to his hand. You can see that it still yeah, has most like of his fingers. Maybe he lost a finger. It, they're hiding it from us too. Yes. It's, yes, yes, yeah. yes. But even when he shows it to uh, Langridge, he doesn't, say um like we don't really see what happened we see some fingers so we're like okay so he didn't lose all his fingers which i thought maybe did happen um he's lost maybe one it's potentially but it's too bandaged up to really be able to tell so yeah you're right even in there from us even though he's revealing it to this other person um we, we still don't really know um but importantly he's not hi he's not showing it to his immediate um like closest confidants like trixie uh the line reading here from Paula Malcolmson is so strange. I had to rewatch this opening. I'm glad you picked up on that too. It's like somebody said like action and then there was a pause and then she started the scene, but they never edited out the introductory bit. She like comes into the room and then just stops and then starts speaking. It's really strange. Um, it is, yeah, I didn't it, really get it. 
It is so, yeah, it's, it's, I got to, and this is again, <laughs> this is where I, I this is and the it opens the episode. Like, like, this is like, the moment where I first went to Wikipedia, like who directed this? <laughs> Cause it's so strange. And her performance in this scene is so untricksy. It's not like Trixie at all. It is very like earnest and like sprightly. Whereas Trixie is so like, is so like hard edged and, and like cynical all the time. This in this scene, she's so like, like she really means what she's saying and she like really cares. It's just so strange. And it is kind of like, you know, a lot of the time when we talk about performances, we don't think about direction. Well, right. we don't talk about direction. We don't talk about how well, how was this person directed to act? Um, I definitely have. There was an episode, I think maybe season one or season two, where I thought whoever was directing was not drawing out the performance that I would yeah. have would have chosen I, for some of those I actors. I think we talked about that last season. I remember. I don't yeah, maybe it was last one. season. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's like it's it is a it is a strange scene because it feels like Paula Malcolmson was not being given the direction that she she was not being told like play this differently. It seems like almost like it's the first take and they just kind of let her in literally like open the door, come on in, say your lines. And like, I think you kind of see the way, like the, you know, the, the, the er example of this is how everyone talked shit about Hayden Christensen in, in the star Wars prequels. Mm. And no one said, well, how was he being, everyone called him a bad actor. No one said, how was he being directed to act? You know, what was he? Cause a lot of actors, you know, there's, there's actors who can just kind of go, and right. they don't really, and they're kind of like, look, just, just turn the camera on and I'll do what you need me to do. But there's a lot of actors who are great performers who need to work with a director who needs someone to say like, what, like explain, like, help me figure out this character, help me get in the headspace I need to get at so I can give you the performance that you need. And it'll be a great performance, but it needs to be a collaborative process. And I think maybe Paula Malcolmson is an actress who works best with a director. Whereas I, you know, and I, I don't where you know, whereas I don't notice this with like Ian McShane in this episode, because I get the impression that Ian McShane is the kind of actor who is who you can just let go and he'll just do it. And he isn't really asking for direction. Um, well, I he can, maybe, he can also fill in gaps with facial expressions or like little small yeah. things, which, but the, the problem with this introduction, I mean, a problem, I actually didn't care. I thought it was just... I don't think it's bad. Like, Paula Malcolmson is a great actress. Yeah, she's I, fantastic. I, I and like, she's not bad in this scene. I like her a lot. She's awesome. Yeah, but it's just... The problem is that... <laughs> I just rewatched, like, just seeing the visual of it. She opens the door, shuts it behind her, and, like, gets ready to say the line. So you, like, see her, like, furrowing her brow and, like, getting ready to say the line. And, like, she's waiting for, like... Or, or, or it's almost like she's like, oh, they'll edit this this little bit out. They'll cut to something else and then come back to me, or they'll use it. Yeah, it is. It's like they expect her. It's like they she expects them. Oh, this is where they'll cut to the reverse of right. him. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And then because the problem is her first line is accusatory. Yeah, and so <laughs> it's like if she had burst in and been like, "Since when do you play the recluse or whatever it is?" She says something like that. Um, like, "Since when are you a recluse?" Like, she's accusing Al of of hiding, and. To delay that is such a it's so weird. That's why it sticks out. If she had just come in and like sort of, you know, her line was something like she would never say this, but if it was something like, Is everything okay? Then you can you can sort of ease into that line. But an, an accusation, 
<laughs> it doesn't build like that. It just goes from like zero to a hundred. Um, and it's, yeah, it's just bizarre. Just bizarre. But yeah, I mean, you sh- I, I, I doubt this scene is on YouTube because it's not a really consequential scene in any way. Yeah. Definitely. But like, I wish, and obviously if you're listening to this, you've seen the show, but I wish I could like play for you how she delivers these lines because it is strange. It's just strange. It is. Um, I, having said that, I think Trixie, Paul Malcolmson does like there's other scenes that are much and more. Yeah, she's back to normal in other scenes. That's yeah. the really weird part. Yeah. It's just, it, it's almost like an edit that they were looked at and they said, you know what? I like it like that. And there was some internal logic to the editors or to uh, Greg Feinberg or whoever was looking at this and said, I really like that intro and, or I like how that the scene plays out. Um, so, you know, I, I always take it on faith that what we're seeing, obviously there's like interference from studios and stuff when it's movies. Certainly that can happen. But generally I take it on faith that what we're seeing is what the director wanted. Um, which is why I feel free to criticize it if I don't like it, because I'm like, well, you wanted it and I think it's stupid. So, you know, that's, that's fine. You think it's great, obviously. Otherwise you wouldn't have put it out there. And generally that's how I, I feel pretty strongly. So, um, in this case, it's like, that's what Greg Feinberg wanted and or the editor or whoever it was who made this decision. Fine. Or even David Milch, who, who knows? Maybe he was the one who wanted this. I don't know who, who's to say. Um, I just, I can't really figure out why. Um, but anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so she's sort of accusing Al of hiding from Hearst and is like, you need to get back on this. And, and there is an implication that Al has been truly maybe spooked is maybe too strong a word but he is uh realizes who he's dealing with with Hearst and that he needs to play his cards much better uh than he has been so far um and also that he is dealing with someone who will just straight up kill him and the people who work for him and has no qualms about doing that and also has a lot more anonymous faces to do that uh that he's also willing to throw under the bus than uh you know, if Al loses his main henchman, he doesn't really have very much else, right? There's nothing else there. Uh, whereas, like, these, like, random folks who keep killing the Cornish people, the Cornish workers, uh, Hearst seems to have an endless supply of them. Um, and he's willing to have them be murdered or thrown in jail, and he doesn't really care, as long as it doesn't affect him or his work. Um, and that is a level of power and influence that Al just has never had to contend with before. Um, so I think he's a bit shaken by this. And then, of course, his very personal willingness to do harm to Al is also uh, a bit worrisome. So I think there is that. But I, I agree it's a bit weird to have Trixie be the one to be like, you know, snap out of it. Get get, get back get back into the game. What are you doing? Um, and the reason that she's so invested in this is that Alma is planning to have a meeting with Hearst, which is, of course, uh, a supremely stupid idea, which everyone tries to warn her against, and she nevertheless yeah. persists. What is what is up? What is up with Alma lately? Honestly, <laughs> she is like. Well, first of all, she's no longer sick. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's. I mean, we should not gloss over this. There's a time skip at this in this episode. Yes. Um, that is so rare for Deadwood because a lot, like especially last season. Deadwood was just literally, we talk about this all the time, one day and the next day and the next day. Yep. And so to open this episode with not just that it's been like, you know, however long, I think 10 days 
or something. I think maybe Trixie says that, but around a week. Right. And it it opens with Trixie literally recapping the events of that, you know, of the intervening time to Al. Just see, all right, and and here's what happened since the last episode because there's been a stretch of time. Um, yeah, again, I just gonna I'm just gonna keep saying it. Weird episode. <laughs> it is. It is. It is just weird all over, and, and and not necessarily in a bad way, but just I don't know. I don't. I don't know what to. I don't know what to do with this one. Well, I think. I mean, again, I like this. I, I like when we're told the stories of the characters when it's most interesting. And if nothing interesting happened in the intervening intervening time, then I'm I'm willing to believe that. As if this is a real play, you know. I'm treating it as if it's a real town that just you know is really you know, really exists, obviously it did exist, but I mean, like, this world, this fictional world exists and is proceeding. If Al's not making any moves and Seth's restraining himself, then perhaps there isn't much to be be said up to this point. But when Alma is back on her feet, that sort of sets off, again, a series of, of interactions. Um, but what it is jarring, it is a bit jarring. And by the way, earlier this, uh, this or maybe, like, I think it was in the first episode, we talked about the fact that there was this time jump in we have seen that a bit in the show um, this season that this is like they're going sort of that route where they're able to move forward a bit faster. I'm not sure if we're going to keep seeing that. Um, you know, I don't know what the timeline is. And when David Milch realized the show was canceled and sort of just maybe pushed things ahead in order to get through more of what would have been in season four, I guess. Um, so that may be part of this, but because I know that's what happened with, for example, Rome. Rome got canceled in season two, so they they fast forwarded through like four seasons worth of material into in just in season two. It's nuts how far they like jump like eons. Basically, it's crazy. Um, and uh, so I I don't know if that was the same story here, um, but it does feel like perhaps they're trying to get through more than they would like at a faster pace than they would have if they had had longer to go. Um, but yeah, so there's this there's this little uh, time jump, and now Alma is just raring to go. She is back on her feet, and she's like, I am just doing fine, and I am very excitable, and I want to go out, and I want to talk to Hearst, and we're going to hammer out a deal. <laughs> and it's like, she has not been in the game uh, for a while, and does not know what is going on. Um, and... Uh, yeah, so what I mean, I, I watching her scenes, I was I kept thinking about you. I kept thinking, I don't know what Esu's gonna make of this. <laughs> um You're talking specifically about the scene with Alma? Just the scene just the Alma's plan, um and how that plan sort of plays out. You know, uh she goes with, with Ellsworth to see Hearst. Uh Ellsworth can't contain himself. Uh, she gets told that she should not meet with Hearst again by Ellsworth, and then she ignores him and goes and meets with Hearst anyway, and it goes extraordinarily badly. And yeah, so that's what I mean. Like, yeah, I mean, I've been. <laughs> it's funny. I feel like I always try to kind of keep a lid on my feelings about Alma because I don't dislike her as a character, but I do. <laughs> Like, I I did call her a turf on Twitter one time. Yeah, you did. Um, <laughs> just because that's the kind of vibe I get look, and I Alma. completely agree. I I love 
I I like Alma. I love Molly Parker. I completely, completely <laughs> agreed with you. I was like, it made it was the thing that made the most sense. I think on that list. <laughs> like, yeah, she absolutely would be. And and by the way, there is a lot of continuity here. I mean, like on one hand, I was I was disappointed because the contrast between her and her husband was that she was actually much smarter than she was given credit for and she could be much more of a, That's the thing. a mover and a shaker than, than she could so on one hand that that is who she is on the other hand she's not like Trixie where she's been in the world and has been dealing with these folks regularly she also carries with her the, the flip side of that which is this rich unengaged disconnected sort of person who thinks that you know everything's done with a handshake and a you know nod wink but that's basically like the extent of it and doesn't really deal in the way that Hearst seems to deal which is much closer to Al than it is like the people that she was affiliated with back in New York so she's is- sort of both of these ends of things and this seems to lean more towards that than it does towards her intelligence well no but my thing with Alma I think I think you kind of just revealed it to me which is that I wish she was a smarter person like I want her to be smart and capable and able to manipulate and like play the game Mm -hmm. that the rest of these, that a lot of the rest of these characters are playing. Um, and she's just not like, she just never has been. She has always been three steps behind everyone else. And like with no understanding of, of how to operate in this world. And she just always blunders through and, and makes mistakes. And it is just, well, she did what? trick uh, Farnham, right? Or she tried to trick Farnham. Okay, but Farnham is one of the stupidest <laughs> okay, people. Okay, yeah, it's a low bar. It's a low bar. It's a low bar. I get it. I know, but I mean, you're right. Like that is that is the bar for her. That is what she is capable. That's of. That's fair. We haven't seen her really go past that, even though it feels like she should be capable of more than that. Well, that's the thing, yeah. Like, and I think a lot of this is Molly Parker's performance. Like, she plays Alma as so confident and assured and like powerful. That when she goes into these situations where she just makes the stupidest decisions, <laughs> it's kind like it's it's kind of infuriating because I want Alma <laughs> to be a I want her to be a smarter character than that. But I think I think you make a good point. Like the reason why she is ultimately a well written character is that she's not smart, or not that she's not smart, but that she is not uh, knowledgeable of the way that these people work and the and the way that you have to play their game. Right in the frontier, right versus like her, her area. She just doesn't know, and and all the confidence in the world, and all the power that she feels like she has because of this claim, and because of the world that she comes from, the very privileged world she comes from. At the end of the day, she just doesn't have it in her. And I kind of like as hard as that, genuinely as hard as it is for <laughs> me to watch, like it's it's good writing. Yeah, I mean, I'm conflicted because I want her. You know, there's. I like the female characters on the show. I genuinely do. I think they're really cool. I think Aunt Lou is a phenomenal character. Oh, just I can't wait to talk Holy about her. Holy yeah. crap. Can't wait. Um, I, yeah, just wow. Um, so like these, I think there really is genuinely good writing for female characters on the show. Um, but I also think that they're, you know, here's a character who, like you said, is really could be doing so much more, but then maybe that's not, how it would work you know maybe not every character you know not every character can be an Isringhausen who while she sort of got played was much more of a player than um than Alma is um but yeah I mean it clearly Molly Parker is trying to has some 
and and it's been consistent despite the directors despite everyone else maybe david milch has some hand in this but clearly she has a pretty good idea of who alma is because she's very consistent in how she speaks with ellsworth versus how she interacts with hearst um like she's ignores ellsworth doesn't care what he has to say really um it's constantly telling him not to swear and not to speak to her like that and whatever disregarding his orders or whatever he's trying to do um and then immediately with Hearst just crumbles, which is actually a very similar phenomenon, by the way. That scene reminded me a lot of when Jane spoke to Al or tried to confront Al in season one and just Yeah. Yeah. That's a good call. So it seemed a very similar sort of thing. And there's another example of like Jane's very confident with almost everybody, but just couldn't handle including murderers, whatever, she can handle all that, but Al just freaked her out. Um and here, you know, Hearst just crumpled up um, Alma and yeah, it was really depressing, but also like her and also, but here's why I, here's why I, it immediately came to me and it was reminded me of her, her status or her, her privileged sort of upbringing. She's like all the time I spent writing that letter and then rechecking it again and editing it and then reading it. Again. I was like, you wrote a note for yourself to read because you couldn't remember it. And you edited it so that it would come out good when you spoke to the man. Like that's sad. If you think that's some sort of investment of time and energy, wow. I mean, not that it's like trivial to come up with a deal, but I mean, come on. And also, didn't come up with any counter proposals. Didn't come up with any way to like negotiate further. Has no leverage. Like, just did not enter that with any sort of, um, or even just you know. Even uh, Hearst shows up with a giant man behind him in most instances to intimidate other people because he understands, at the very least, physical intimidation. And almost like, nope, I'm just going to go in there and everything's going to be fine. And it's just great. And like, well, she does go with she... Ellsworth first, but she, by herself, she just goes in unarmed, un, unsupervised, whatever. And like, has no, she doesn't even like hire like uh, somebody to just walk in with her and just stand there and look intimidating. You know, they don't say this in the episode. It's not really, but I think it is subtext, this idea that she sees Hearst as someone like familiar. Mm. She like, they come, like they come from the same world. And I think she thinks that she can go into this meeting with him. Cause he's like, rich. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think so. Like, yeah. I think she thinks she can go into this meeting with him. Like they're equals, like they're on the same level. And what she finds out is that Hearst and what we find out about Hearst in this episode very plainly he puts it to sigh is that he think he thinks everyone is beneath him oh my god and he will yeah. he will he will only and he, you know he using some truly uh horrific language um really yeah he says it to sigh he's like i will only deal with people who are who i can treat like dogs right and 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 we should also talk about by the way uh obviously there's a sexual element to the way that he menaces her um, but he says in that scene with Sai at the end of the episode, I almost raped her. Yeah, yeah, no, that, he, like, it's like, in that scene, oh you're like, God. what is the vibe of this? But then later, nope, he almost, it's, he says, I almost raped her, I almost murdered Seth. Yeah, that's, <laughs> like, that too, what? yeah. Um, the dude's, like, he's nuts, and he's not just, like, he's just super nuts, and there's so many layers to how, like, crazy he is. When he talks about, um, well, first of all, we get confirmation this episode twice his wife gets brought up, um, yeah. which I suppose makes everything even more like just what is happening. Um, 
but we talked last episode about you know, the fact that he does have a family and other interests. Um, and as we know, he did historically. Um, but anyway, here he's talking about, uh, uh, he keeps coming back. To, he brings up again the boy that talked to talks to thing again um which aunt lou is like yeah mm -hmm, yep that is your indian name yeah sure yep and uh <laughs> and he sees that she's not you know we can talk about that but she you can see that she's not really you know indulging him um but the way he talks about the earth like it's a like it's a female person that he needs to like plunder it's so creepy and then well, later a he, a, a, he talked very specific here yeah, a woman not that just that he has to plunder, but that is inviting him and yeah, telling, telling him me where, where to, to dig into her. Yeah, that's what he says. Telling that me is, where to dig is, into her. You might say consenting, right? Like that is very specifically what he's talking about. Yeah, and there is a yeah. I mean, you know, people there gender all sorts of objects. Like why? Like we gender ships as female. Like yeah. it's just kind of a thing that people that we do in English anyway. Um. But I think there, you're absolutely right in picking up on this element of just um, seeing literally the planet as something to conquer, as something like to that dominate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something to dom that something that wants you not just to something that wants you to dominate it. Yep. That he see and that he sees people this way too, as like look that he sees Aunt Lou this way. I think, and we should maybe transition into talking about Aunt Lou, but that he sees her as someone who as opposed to Sai, who he has to exert his power over and threaten and intimidate, he sees Aunt Lou as someone who wants to be in this position, who wants him to have power over her mm. because she's black. Mm. And that's how he sees black people. Because right. um, when he what he says to Sai is, is he says, I, you know, I will not use the word he used, but he says, you know, I, I only want to deal with black people and with people I, and with white people who, He's made subservient to him, basically. Yeah. Ex yeah, yeah. Ex yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, but he makes that decision. And it's all it's all so that everything will clear the like he doesn't want any he wants a frictionless experience interacting with humans where where necessary to interact with humans because he'd rather not, so that he can get back to the main thing, which is uh prospecting, which I must emphasize, the man doesn't prospect. That is also a like yeah. a fundamental thing here. The man is not ever digging anything ever. He was talking about the earth, but he sends other people to do it for him. So he doesn't. It's not like he likes getting down in the mud and like he has like a weird like uh, you know do it yourself kind of attitude, even though everyone else is doing it with him. No, he sends them to do it, but talks about it like he's the one communicating with the earth. It's kind of nonsense. I mean, the dude just is so weird. And like he's gotten, so I really like how much weirder he's gotten even since his introduction. Like it's really shifted. But and also last episode, I know I had said about him that I thought his that they they had changed the character, uh, that maybe they had changed the character a bit uh, from the way they introduced him. But here they they synthesize all of those elements together. They synthesize his. They really are emphatic about it to the point where Ellsworth actually points it out that he's playing this like, well, I'm just a boy and he likes to be mommied by Aunt Lou and that whole thing. And he talks about the boy that Earth talks to again. He talks about how he's, you know, when I was 12 and he keeps going into all these things about how he's a child. Um, but he's also paired with these horrific, horrific things he's been doing and continues to do. And it's made pretty plain, like, what? Extremely explicit that he uses this 
maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, maybe both um, facade, uh, because like, I think he also has some weird um, vision of himself or image of himself as like this innocent character um, in some ways to maybe help justify some of his, his actions. Um, But also as like cover or to lure people into a sense of um, uh, security so that he can, you know, manipulate them and take advantage of them right that's his whole shtick um and it's just really uncomfortable (laughs) i'm glad you brought up this idea that he's very explicit in this episode Mm. because something i noted is that that hadn't really occurred to me before a lot of the characters on deadwood talk like you know there's kind of a there's there's a there's a continuum where on one end is like EB who talks in the most like flowery loquacious way. And every, like using every ridiculous variation on a word he can think of instead (laughs) of just saying something plainly. Um, And on the other end you have Seth who, you know, he's, he still talks the way you would expect someone of the time period to talk, but he's very kind of brusque and And he's not, he doesn't really bullshit. Uh, Hearst is, is, is completely outside the realm of even any of the previously established characters. He has no, like, he does not mask the way he talks in a lot of, uh, you know, loquaciousness. He said he is, he is as plain a speaker as any other character on this show. He just says in very simple English, exactly what he means or exactly what he wants to mean at any given time. He does not, he, he is not, hiding it behind language he does not use language and this is a show that is very much in its writing about language and about the way that people talk to each other Mm. and in you know in the way that you know eb is the great example of like you get who that character is even if there are lines of his where i have to like go back and turn the subtitles on because i do not know what he was supposed to be saying (laughs) But that is who that guy is, and you get it based on the way he talks, and you know who these characters are by how they talk. It's the it's the old adage, which I think is kind of silly, but it is kind of true here of like, take all the names off of a script, can you tell who the characters are still? Mm. You could do that for an Here for, no doubt, undoubtedly. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And on, and on a lot of shows, you couldn't, because <laughs> everyone just kind of talks the same. Yeah. Um, but... Which isn't necessarily yeah. a bad thing, depending on how the show Not necessarily, is whatever, yeah. If, yeah. I mean, if they talk, if it's fun to watch, then, you know, fine. But it, I, I think Deadwood distinguishes itself because all of these characters, you know who they are based on how they talk. And Hurst is a guy who doesn't, very clearly, I think, doesn't like to talk. He's very short. He's very crisp. He's very, you know... You can tell that he just would rather be doing anything else. He just wants to get it out. Yeah, well, so so that's certainly part of it. I mean, he does put on, he puts on airs in order to, you know, like his, obviously his response to Ellsworth and Alma is different than his response just to Alma um, in doing this whole, you know, he tells this whole thing about Aunt Lou and how when he was 12, blah, blah, blah. Like he does do that to some extent. Um, but you're right. He does speak very plainly, probably closer to Seth in some ways. Uh, with more words though because Seth just doesn't talk very much um, but yeah I think the other thing about this in terms of plainness or or, or you know the whole you know, theme of the episode this true colors thing is you have these two I think it's so cool to see this uh, Langrish character get Al to 
open up in a way that we have literally never seen in this this episode this this show sorry this whole series um and in this episode he he does and it's like bizarre to watch it's so cool uh and then similarly aunt lou gets in many ways gets hearst to open up not intentionally per se but um hearst just feels like he can say whatever he wants to her because he's not a like Langrish is not a henchman that he needs to keep certain information from he's not this is somebody he can just speak into and it's it doesn't matter it's not it's like a for for the relationships obviously quite different between these two characters versus like um alan Langrish, but there's this uh openness that is just completely absent with other other people and other characters um and that's how we learn uh like for example he's completely willing to say that this is the biggest prospecting opportunity that he has ever encountered which is not something he would say to other people especially not like alma for example because that in a negotiation never say how valuable the thing is that you want but he just has complete confidence and also trust and also it seems like maybe he grew up with aunt lou that he's just willing to say these things um, quite openly, and the same with uh, with Langrish. You have Al saying things that you just would never expect. He gives a tour to the guy, a tour of Deadwood. He hasn't done that for anybody ever, and for no reason. It's not for like to get to like get something out of him. He just is like hanging out with his friend. It's really quite something. So I like that these the the, the way again. I love when new characters come in and cause old characters to show a new side of them, and I think we see that a lot in this episode. Yeah, I mean, do you want to talk about language, or do you want to talk about Aunt Lou? Because I think let's, those are the two kind of main things in this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Aunt Lou. Let's talk about Aunt Lou first. I think that's the the main one, uh, and we can we can go to the other one after. Yeah, I was really, I was. This is in a this is <laughs> this is in a situation with a character where at the end of this episode I was kind of like, oh, you got me. <laughs> Because as she's introduced, it is very much in the like Hattie McDaniel gone with the wind mold. Yep, yep. Like yep. that arc, that very much that archetype. Like very literally recalling that specific character and just that character's place in pop culture uh, as the very uh, subservient. Um, you know, I mean, I don't even you you know the type of character I'm talking about. You saw it in like the Help. You know, this is a character archetype that persists in cinema of the subservient black woman who is only concerned with 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 helping her white, uh, you know, master. Right. And that is the way Aunt Lou is introduced and and the way that you see her several times throughout the episode. And then it comes to this. (laughs) Astonishing conclusion um, where she is she is seen playing Mahjong with a bunch of Chinese people and she is smoking a cigar and speaking in Mandarin or, or maybe Cantonese, I don't know. Yeah, it's almost undoubtedly Cantonese because we've been correct. Yeah. We've been corrected on that. Yeah, yeah. Cantonese and and talking shit about Hearst. And it's just oh, yeah. at, at that moment, I was like, oh, OK, I, I should have trusted you all. Along. That was, you knew what you were doing. Yeah, you knew exactly what you were doing. That was fantastic and 
I, we've certainly raised concerns about the way some of the non-white characters have been portrayed on the show, but wow, what a turnabout. And I, I like this scene for a lot of reasons. Um, I like the camaraderie between her and, and these these like random Chinese folks we've not really met before. I like Wu taking notice of this um, because Al's conversation with Wu is so funny earlier on, but there is this plan that they're sort of hatching together. Or at least Al's hatching it. I think Wu's sort of following along on what's happening. But he certainly gets the idea that it's them against Hearst. And when he sees this person who seems to be connected to Hearst and has information about Hearst, but is also a um, uh, uh, speaks a little bit of Chinese and could be a way into that world, you can see that sort of, you know, the, the, the um, gears turning in his head there. Um, so that's cool, but it's also particularly funny and particularly ironic, and I really like this little turn, that um, that unbelievable conversation between Al and Wu uh, concludes, uh, roughly concludes with uh, Al saying that he has to be the interpreter in the meeting between him, between Wu and Hearst, because he's the only one who speaks both languages in the camp. Yeah. <laughs> Which, like, Al does not speak any Chinese whatsoever. No, he doesn't. Um but again, ironically, like Aunt Lou absolutely does <laughs> at least mm-hmm. a few phrases, which uh, Al's just never bothered to learn uh, even a little bit. And uh, so, yeah, I, whereas, you know, Wu's actually trying to learn at least here and there, at least a few words in English. Um, and so, yeah, it's just a, it's a great turn of that, that character. And also you can see just how much disdain she has for, for Hearst and you have to wonder you know we don't know much about their past together but you have to wonder what that sort of relationship is I will say this just very briefly um, Aunt Lou is also a very famous uh, real person from Deadwood uh, mm-hmm. and I will link uh, BH uh, Black I think Black Hills Pioneer newspaper article or, or like write up of who she was in the town never worked for Hearst in real life uh, but was a significant figure in the town and then uh, after being employed by several different people after that, she did open up her own establishment towards the end of her career. So um, quite a cool character, and I'll, I'll link that so if people are curious, they can, they can read up. Um, so yeah, I hadn't even considered, but of course, you know, everyone in the show is real pretty much. So not everyone, but many of these characters. So that's really cool. Um, so yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know how this character is going to end up playing a role, but I think she's got a lot more to do than I think one might initially assume. Yeah, I, I love... I just love, and it is kind of cheeky in a way that Deadwood has not previously been, the way that they kind of, just her introduction and what they think, what they make you think this character is going to be, and then and then kind of turning that on its head. Um, you know, we'll have to see how she develops. I, I'm really excited to see, like, again, like you say, what what they do with her, how, what role she has to play, if any, or if she, if she is kind of, or if she has uh, uh, stories unto herself, because I'm sure, you know, she's just... It is, I think, on a show that is so influenced by uh, the tropes of the Western and the way that Westerns tip, you know, there are obviously a lot of Westerns about, there are Westerns about uh, black people and there are Westerns with black characters, but it is not a genre that is in its most famous uh, iterations very kind to black people or if, if it depicts them at all. So I, I, I'm. They I'm tend to be, be quite absent. Yeah, I mean that is definitely a phenomenon. Yeah. So I, I really like that it, it takes your understanding of like the Gone with the Wind character, right? 
and completely turns it around in a way that is almost like, I mean, the way she's depicted in this final scene is insane. <laughs> it's, it's, it is, it's so it is, good. And, and Cleo King, who crazy. plays her, just does a fantastic job flipping. She's phenomenal. Code she's switching. So, I mean, it's code, yeah. What it is is code switching. I mean, that's just, that's what's yeah. so interesting to me about this character is we have a character who a lot of – like we talk about a lot on, on our show about how people on Deadwood are always playing roles. Yep. They are being – who are the other who the they're being who the people around them want to see mm. al does this all the time Cy does this in this episode or he attempts to uh <laughs> you know Joni does this trixie the women especially have to yeah. do this um so to see that again in this character who is very you know she is not just another cool female character has now been another cool female character but again a character who is uh who has to pretend to be someone I mean, basically for her own, to ensure her safety, yep, right? For sure. To ensure that she has safety and security in her life. And we don't know if she has a family or if she has any, you know, people who, I mean, again, we don't know if she's a slave, if she's getting paid, you know, I, I would assume she's a slave. Right. Um, although, no, wait a minute. What? When does this show take place? <laughs> Is this post? Oh, I guess not. Yeah. I don't know what I was thinking. Yeah. No, yeah, of I course guess it not. is. Yes, it's so post, she, so it's she post civil war. So yes, yeah, it must be post emancipation proclamation. But um, when you know when we say slave, there's also indentured I mean, servitude yeah, and sharecropping and all sorts a, of things. Is right? she being yeah. paid a penny a day? Like it's there. There's well, she, and 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 the reason also that I sort of made that assumption, which you write timeline wise, wouldn't really line up. And I'm sure people were pulling out the hair when I said that. But the but the reason I said that in part is because the implication is that Hearst again in this version of reality this because it wasn't in real life um that Hearst grew up either with or maybe being taken care of by Aunt Lou and if that's the case you know the civil war was very yeah. recent so like she was likely their slave at some point and if she was freed but stuck around or whatever and you know for low pay or almost no pay or maybe for no pay i don't know but like isn't a slave technically like you could see that being still the relationship and it's definitely the implication between them is that and it's the way Hearst seems to view you know he certainly has the view that like that's how we interact with black people is like they are like that hasn't the law may have changed but they haven't changed kind of vibe which is like super unbelievably regressive and whatever but it is it's a carryover, I think, from his his life, like prior to the Civil War, for example. So, yeah, okay, she might not be a slave legally, but it doesn't seem like. And certainly, by the end of the episode, it's pretty clear that it's not like she's a fan of this guy. Um, what is clear is that he's extremely powerful. Where could she go that he could not find her, um, and or in some way compel her to be uh, in his employ? And if she knows him well enough, which it seems like she has a very good read on him, especially at the end, when the way she talks about how he doesn't really care about gold, he just wants a bigger number in his bank account, which actually I think is quite a good read. Um, she probably also is familiar that he is with the fact that he is a violent man. Um, so there's also the question of like literal personal safety of like if he flies into a rage or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that that relationship is. If not slave master, certainly extremely I mean, no, yeah, tilted. It is that is it might as well be. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm I'm super psyched to see to see more of, of Aunt Lou. I think she is 
instantly compelling. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, And uh, yeah, I like, because, I mean, she could have been interesting on her own just as like a, well, on her own, in, in relation to Hearst as like a way to get him to reveal things to the audience that we wouldn't normally see, but then it feels kind of like tokenistic or... or, or that's Well, that's what I thought she was going to be. Right. That's when I talk about what I, my assumptions with how they initially depict this character. That's exactly what I thought they were going to be. As like, yeah, sort of character building for, for Hearst rather than for... Uh, her on her own but yeah no she's got her own her own story going on and i think we're gonna see more of that um yeah so that's exciting talk about languish yeah Yeah, let's talk about languish yeah so um he he, they really lean into like the fact that he's irish here um so like he's he's definitely irish he he, he's he actually makes a statement uh at one point mocking americans and and by the way i must reiterate this point the real al swearingen as far as i know was not british but they made a point in the beginning of the first season, which I, I said at the time, to point out the fact that this Al Swearingen is British. They made some comment about his accent or about him being like his limey accent or something. I don't, there was some sort of comment made. Um, I don't know why. I think at the time I was like, and I still don't really know why, but it was because they thought maybe Al, they thought Ian McShane couldn't pull off an American accent. I don't know. He does They're an amazing covering job. Covering their bases, almost yeah. Yeah, almost covering their bases. Um, and there's no suggestion that they know each other from outside of the United States. Certainly, they've made it built up the story of Al to be like he was in Chicago as a child. So it's not like he's he spent most all of his life or almost all of his life, as far as we can tell, in the United States. So I don't really know what this is. Um, but leaving Al aside, we know Langrish is. Irish, and he even makes a comment at one point about how Americans uh, never think to to try the window, um, which I thought was a, quite a funny a line. Um, so you have this outsider perspective sort of coming into town, and an element again like the schoolhouse that we just have never seen in the context of Deadwood, which is like a theater troupe or or entertainers. Yeah, what a weird again, 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 weird, weird episode. <laughs> Bizarre development. Brian Cox appears and he is like, and he, and now the Deadwood players and like, what is, oh, I, I couldn't get, wrap my mind around. This is a very, I, okay, here's what I'll say. This is a very season three development. <laughs> it's like, and now, uh, now a wandering troop of actors are, have shown up and what, what uh, mischief they'll get up to. But what's so funny about it is, like I said, it's a real thing. And, yeah, and on top of that, but, but what, what isn't real, historical uh, uh, fact, as far as I can tell, um, is that of all the people in the town, the person that this guy, this flamboyant character, is connected to is Al? What? Yeah. And yet it almost, like, And they, they do not elucidate. <laughs> They do not elucidate nope. in the slightest what nope. their relationship is, what their history is. And I don't know if we'll get that at some point. I hope we do because it is so, it is, it is so, uh, again, bizarre that he shows up and he is this like theater dandy and he is so flamboyant, uh, and so, uh, charming. But then he also has these weird moments of like, where you can tell he's a little cold blooded, mm. like when the woman tips Blazanov, yep, and he's like, "You tip too, too much." much. Yep. <laughs> it's like, whoa, what? What is this character? Um, so the fact that he has some history with Al, and that Al, by the way, oh, by the way, I, I do want to mention um, once again, Al scrubbing is a motif. Yeah, on the uh, bar. Yeah, I knew you wiping the bar yeah. very anxiously, wiping the bar. Yep, we, this is the third episode in a row we've seen that. <laughs> um, 
And someone on Twitter, uh, Harry EC, said said that was a good call. And I think Harry EC has seen the show before. <laughs> so presumably this continues to be a theme. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how it possibly could. <laughs> but I, I guess it, it pops well, just, up again. I mean, he may just look. It's a little bit elbow grease. He's just into it, you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, it's a good, it's a good like, uh, tick and it's a good, good observation. Um but yeah, no, he's clearly, and he says, you know, this this guy makes him nervous. But actually, yeah, well, that's what I was gonna say. That this is a guy who Al Swearingen can't get a read on. That yeah. he doesn't. He says, hey, I don't know how to feel about him, and that's so rare. Yeah, I don't know how to feel about him, but it's not like he's a new element that I don't know how to feel. It's like I've known him for a long time, and I don't yeah, know how to get a read on him exactly. Because like, it's like, uh, so implying a complicated history. But when you see them interacting, he doesn't really seem. I mean, he doesn't. Quite, he doesn't seem afraid of him at all. It's not like that. Um, he doesn't seem really Ill, Ill at ease though. Like when he shows them around, he really their interactions seem extremely like um, amiable. Like he, they don't. They again, they seem like old friends. Again, Al doesn't have any friends. It's yeah. really weird to see him like this. But he's just really open. He shows. He says, I'll, you know, I haven't shown anyone else. This shows him his hand. That is, that indicates a level of trust, despite the fact that he doesn't know how to feel about him. Indicates a level of trust for this this, this person who we've never met before. Um, and I just, I'm so curious to know more about their relationship, especially with that final scene. Especially with that final scene, uh, which the show, you know, with the which the episode ends on. Um, like it's a, a quite a moment between the two of them. Um, so like, yeah, I, I really don't know. And like, we see, you know, he knows what, while Al doesn't know how he feels about him personally. And while Langrish makes those weird comments about how, you know, violence is, you know, super superfluous, but you know, there's, there's deeper pain to be had or whatever deeper hurt to be made, you know, inflicted or whatever he says, something along those lines. Merrick's reaction to that, by the way, is hilarious. Yes. It's like his mustache makes a perfectly straight line. <laughs> and, just, and just terror. It's like a, car- uh, yeah, it's like a cartoon. It is like a cartoon. Um, <laughs> I, almost as cartoonish as the like 15 expressions uh, that um, uh, Farnham goes through when Hearst. Oh my God. Which is just Every, hilarious. It's, you know what? It's not even worth talking about because it's like a nothing scene, but yeah, Farnham, I don't, I don't even know what to say about Farnham in this episode. He is out of control. He is out of control. He's afraid. He said, you know, he, he complains about white men being replaced, which wow, <laughs> just incredible. Like, like, oh, he says, you know, what he says to Richardson is like, you're only, uh, <laughs> it's, it's again, it's like prescient. It's like you're uh, the only thing. The only reason they're firing you is because you're a white male. Yeah, it's just so <laughs> weird. Uh, it is. Here it is. And of course, yeah. we feel like it's prescient, probably because we're more, you know, paying attention to these things. And of course, a lot of this stuff's come to the, to the surface recently. But like, also, these are old sentiments as well. Oh, of right? course, Obviously. no. But it is as a TV show. It is yeah. funny to hear a, t- a TV show in 2006 have a character say yeah. that when it's like. Uh, you can just log on to YouTube and someone will say that to you. But uh, yeah, exactly. You exactly. But Farnham, the like most awful character, good character, but I mean like awful, like not the person you want to emulate is the one who says this should point out to you that this is not <laughs> yeah, a favorable or intellectual opinion. Um, 
so I think that, yeah, it's great to have Farnham say this. If it had been like somebody like Seth, you'd be like, oh, what is this show about, right? But when Farnham says it, you're like, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, but I do love how he, sorry, we, we've got off language, but um, I do love how how, uh, how he says to, to Richardson, he says, candidly, Richardson, as I imagine you foraging for berries and grubs and flicking at insects <laughs> with your sticky tongue, I feel a certain dismay. I mean, what a line. The writing for his character is just unbelievable. Oh, and by the way, I do want to notice, I do want to note again, just a tiny little detail, but so brilliant. Uh, the prices in the hotel have gone up. If you notice on the board. I hadn't noticed that, no. I just noticed that. I don't know if it happened before this episode, but presumably since Hearst bought it, all the prices went up. Well, there you go. And now the menu's been taken off because uh, Aunt Lou is in. Although she seems to get along really well with Richardson. There was this fear, you know, she yeah. replaced. They, they, it's because Richardson doesn't care. And uh, Aunt Lou. And also, by the way, we also have Richardson do the thumbs up, uh, which, the double thumbs up, which is like the best reaction gift from the show now. <laughs> um, and I just, I'm so glad we finally got to that scene because it's just so funny. He's such a character. Anyway. So, yeah. Uh, would love to get your take on this because I it was difficult for me to read, and I suppose it's supposed to be a little bit difficult. But this final scene with Al and Langrish on the veranda, on the balcony. So, yeah, I mean, it is first of all when Al sort of begins this interaction by saying, you know. I'm starting to think if I'm if I'm not queer. First of all, I've been there. Second of all, um, <laughs> so have I. So it is. I like, it is. Uh, it's. It's. Look, Al. We get it. We understand. <laughs> this is your time. But then, of course, it's played off as a. As it's like Pride a, Month, Al. It's Pride Month. It is. <laughs> uh, but then tries to play it off as a joke. So. No, I like, mean, obviously, obviously, he means it in the way that like an old timey person would mean it, and what he's what he's saying is like, why have I not done anything about exactly? Earth? Why am I so scared? But then um, it's brought up again. Well, because because um, Langrish is like teasing him by taking it literally, right? And then he slaps him on the ass at the end of the episode, and he goes, "Oh, don't take it! Don't take uh, the wrong meaning from that." And I think it's funny because it it again illustrates the. What again? We don't know what relationship these two have, yeah. but I think it illustrates the it illustrates it um, the closeness that they have that they that Langrish feels comfortable ribbing him in that way and he kind of and teasing him. him. He spanks, yeah, exactly. Ow. Like, that is something that he spanks uh, Al. <laughs> yeah, that that is what's so crazy about Langrish as a character is that he comes into this town and. It's one thing to just have a character who's like an old friend. It's another thing to have a character who is clearly like has such a profound connection with him that he feels comfortable doing something like that. It's just crazy. And it's almost like we don't even need to know that their history is clearly like immense, but we almost don't even need to know it because all we need to know is the fact that that Langrish felt comfortable doing that. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I don't feel a burning. It's not like a mystery that needs unpeeling. Although, although I'm, I'm happy to see more. Um, but yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, but I just find this final interaction where he does that, and he says, you know, don't take that. Uh, and it, yeah, he's making fun of him, but also Al just sort of responds, like not derisively. He just goes, you know, like okay. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it it can't I can't tell if it's because he's dejected or feels disempowered or emasculated by Hearst or what's going on, but he just, 
he's so chill about it. It's just very, I don't know. I'm not saying that, that I, look, I'm not, Hal's not a queer icon as far as I, as far as I know, as far as I remember. <laughs> that would have been something, to, a big thing to forget about season three. But, you know, if they want to build that up, I mean, there's, there's been a lot of scenes where he's just very disinterestedly having sex. So, you know, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> certainly there is uh some sort of history with him and langrish don't know what it is uh but we'll, we'll uh we'll dig into that uh at some point um quick thing i wanted to just say about blazanov i alert, alluded to it earlier um here we learn two things one he really really does like merrick and i really yeah. thought his cute uh demonstration of how high and low frequencies work so that you can get two different signals from the same, I guess the same message uh, was, it was an amusing scene and like Merrick was not getting it at all, but it was a, like it was actually a really good demonstration. I was like, yeah, no, that's how you would explain that. That makes sense. Um, and then in addition to that, he has a girlfriend, which he's also ha excited to tell uh, Merrick about. Merrick is also um, just kind of disinterested in that because he's so disheartened by the fact that Langrish doesn't seem particularly interested in actually going to his newspaper room. Um, but I, I just like that Blazanov is like this like really earnest character who really just wants to be friends with people. I, it's just cool. It's just nice. <laughs> yeah, Blazanov. It's funny to have, like, it's it's nice to have a character on the show who doesn't have an agenda. Yeah, he doesn't seem you know that at all. I mean? yeah. He just wants to, like... He's proud of his little company that he works for. He likes, <laughs> his, he likes his telegraph, and he's excited about his telegraph, and he wants to be friends. That's it. Yep, and he likes the new technology and all the rest of it. And yeah, not that different than Merrick. I mean, they're like, they seem like natural allies. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just nice. Um, yeah, I, I alluded to this earlier with uh, Alan Wu having their conversation, which I thought was uh, very funny, um, partially just because Al says that he's the only one who speaks both languages. Um, but uh, again, Wu says uh, Hang Dai, uh, which uh, means brothers, somebody has translated for us. So, you know, there's this cl very clear relationship that they're building there, which I think is um, good. I was actually worried that Wu might be written out of the season or something. Like, <laughs> I was glad to see him return. Um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, I, I, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, no, keep going. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, uh, the last little plot that we hadn't mentioned was Seth and the Cornish folks. Yeah, it's just a tiny thing. It's, it's a small it's really thing. Not, yeah. Um, he he. The, really, the, what this thing what it amounts to is Seth goes to put Hurst on notice, and Hurst says, "No, I put you on notice." Right. <laughs> um, but it's it also is interesting because it reveals why Hurst sent his own men to die. Yeah. The gem. So he could have. So he could have sort of counter evidence. Exactly. It's like, well, why? Uh, well, not just that. It's so that it is a direct challenge to to Seth to say, well, you know, my men were were murdered, and you know who did it. So why aren't you investigating that? Which is a decent question, in fairness. <laughs> it, it is. It's a very good question. Now, one could say that those are the same. It's like those men were just random men. They were the ones who literally murdered the Cornish folks before. So you know, um, it's not like they were just randos. Whereas the Cornish their big sin was trying to organize, which again has been really emphasized again as a central point. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not clear where, you know, why Seth, Seth seems to be more motivated by justice than he is there, like right to organize, but he doesn't seem bothered by that at all either. 
Um, but I do like that the culmination of all of this back and forth and the challenge, challenge to Hearst uh, ends with uh, Saul suggesting that, because he says, you know, and, and I like that Seth points out that we're all just dogs chasing our tails in front of Hearst. Um, and then Hearst later is like, I want everyone to be my dog. <laughs> yeah. And he just literally says it. Um, but he says I, the elections can't be a joke because that's just going to be another thing for us to, you know, chase our tails on basically and Saul's suggestion is well what about if we make laws and Charlie's like what laws why would we have laws and I'm like you're literally the deputy sheriff what is it you do here <laughs> like what it actually occurred to me like that's actually a bit of a statement about sheriffs in general they're not there to enforce the law they're just sort of there to enforce personal morality i don't know and i yeah i get that i get that deadwood doesn't have any official laws but like murder is wrong it's like a law and also a thing people know and is what the sheriff is supposed to introduce you know is supposed to enforce so yeah i just thought it was a funny a funny moment again coming back to sort of the roots of the show which is this pushback against civilized civilizing forces like laws which clearly charlie did his utmost to escape so Anyway, so uh, I don't know where that's going to go. Uh, but we clearly are heading towards another conversation between Seth and um, and Hurst, and obviously Al is going to come up with some way to challenge Hurst again as well. Um, potentially precipitated by an attack on like his own people that he'll force into action. I don't know, but we'll, we'll see how that uh, how that all goes. Um, yeah, I think. That's mostly it, huh? Yeah, Doc Cochran is sick, but I think we're going to develop that in future episodes. Yeah, I was going to say, there's nothing to say there except for that he's very sick, which is uh, deeply worrisome. I hope I hope he doesn't just, like, die, because he's, like, an amazing character, and that would be really sad. Yeah, it's, like, one of my favorite characters. <laughs> I would be devastated. He's actually not had a huge role this season so far, so no, it would I mean, be really they, sad to kill him, because it would be like, they, he did if nothing. His, <laughs> if his plot this season is that he's going to be on, his, on death's door, I don't know what I'm going to do. Yeah, that would be great. Um, okay, so next week is uh, Full Faith and Credit, uh, which I assume is like a legalistic term that would be on a document to say that I will like give whatever give you this money on Full Faith and Credit kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But then, of course, obviously Full Faith and Credit can mean any number of things, but it just sounds very legalistic. Um, or like something you would sign. Uh and oh, and the closing song I forgot to mention from this episode is uh, "Walking the Dog." Uh, by I Hans listened to it this week. Oh, I'm there you start. go. Yeah, and yeah, a very very blatant meaning in this. Very story. blatant in this case. Yeah, yeah, less uh, less metaphorical than in the past. But uh, they just and they're the kind of the songs are catchy and they're from all sorts of places, so it's always good. Um, so yeah, that was uh, that was Hoopleheads. Um, as I said, next week is full faith and credit. Uh, in the meantime, you can subscribe to Hoopleheads or just the Movie Fail podcast in general, uh, which includes Hoopleheads and all of our other uh, shows uh, on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, any other uh, podcasting service that you might use. Um, and you can always check us out at moviefail.com. And I encourage you to swing by next week where, we're, where we will be discussing the fourth episode of season. Thanks so much. And uh, thanks for joining me. Bye.